0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We're going to talk about a rather serious subject today. Uh, there's currently a fair amount of uh, press coverage about child abuse, but maybe not as much coverage about elder abuse, yet it is fairly common and it's associated with a variety of complications, including increased mortality. We are with Dr. Paul Takahashi today, a geriatrician and internist in the uh, Division of Community Internal Medicine here at Mayo Rochester. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, dear. I appreciate being here and getting a chance to talk with you about uh, elder abuse. Well, every state in the United States has uh, enacted legislation for protection of our elders, found to be abused so it appears that uh, we feel this is a very important topic and we hear a lot about physical abuse but with the elderly there's there's other types is that, is that correct?
1: That's absolutely correct Daryl. and the reason we really are concerned about our older adults are sometimes they're a little bit more frail a little less apt to kind of speak for themselves so the a little more subtle types of abuse or emotional abuse or neglect sometimes financial abuse. So those things can certainly happen to individuals as as they get older, get more frail, uh, have some cognitive issues. So that's a a big problem for a lot of our older people that we take care of.
0: Are some of the non-physical abuse problems as common or more common than physical abuse? Yeah, I think that the, the one that we're most concerned about is neglect. And that
1: can either be because of a family member or a caregiver who's not giving the adequate nutrition or medication to the older adult. Or self-neglect is probably the most common one. People are in their own homes. uh, They're not taking care of themselves because of dementia or because of their physical issues. and They start losing weight, don't eat well, and they become a danger to themselves. And so that's a really big thing that we see in the clinic, see in the community, and see within people
0: coming in. Let's talk a little bit about self-neglect. I've I've seen that. As a geriatrician, uh, that is a very common thing that you see elderly patients who um, maybe may or may not recognize the fact that they need some assistance and, and con- continue to stay in their home or their environment where it may not be as safe as it should be, what do we do with self-neglect?
1: Well, we hope that we can identify that when people come into the office. So uh, oftentimes these are our individuals who have some degree of cognitive issues, sometimes physical, but oftentimes cognitive. So they not, may not be aware that they're actually not taking care of themselves. Uh, they may not be aware they're not taking their medication or they're losing weight and not eating. They can't really cook for themselves. Sometimes they lose that ability to do that. So I think the first thing we do is we identify and say, hey, I'm I'm really concerned about you. I'm concerned about what's going on within the home. What can we do together, either with a patient or their family or the the county, the team, to help out with that and try to say, can we put things in in line to help maintain the person within the home if possible? If not, then there's more extensive things that can be done. But we really do try to keep people within the home. And I have found it most useful to get the family to help out. Absolutely, Daryl. We have to get everybody involved here because oftentimes the the patient themselves, the person, doesn't really recognize this. So we have to get another loved one or somebody who really cares about the patient and say, let's get involved with this. Let's try to make sure we get some meals in the home, make sure they're getting their medication set up, make sure they're getting dressed or homemaker services. There are things that can be done, but everybody has to be on on the same plan with that, and we have to get a good advocate on the
0: patient's behalf to help. You're a practicing geriatrician. Um, what, are the, what types of abuse do you see most commonly, other than uh, self-neglect?
1: Well, the things that have us a little bit concerned, obviously, is again, the physical abuse does come up. And so there are some people who are, um, it's difficult. I mean, these are often these are adult people living within their homes. Sometimes there can be physical issues that can occur. Emotional abuse is, is common. Uh, people really getting berated or becoming more isolated or not being able to in, be involved with other people in the community. Um, That certainly can happen. The one thing that gets a lot of press and certainly is very concerning is financial abuse and financial exploitation. Uh, It's increasingly common that we have either loved ones or others who are involved with co-management of resources like checkbooks and, and money and that type of thing that... Actually, start to kind of take advantage of the loved one that they're 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 caring for. Um, Start using their resources for their own needs, not for the person's needs. So Mm -hmm. that becomes a a a big problem. And within the probably law enforcement community, that's probably the biggest thing that they see is just
0: you know someone's kind of just draining the checkbook, and uh, that's just not correct. Well, as I mentioned earlier, basically every state in their country has uh, legislation for uh, protection of elders. what do we do when we suspect this? Uh, we, yeah. we're, we're obligated to report
1: it we correct? are correct We are and the obligation and it varies a little bit by state and so within Minnesota uh, there's a couple of different criteria that ha- we have to undertake. One is that obviously there is some issues of harm. Uh, the person's losing weight or there's physical abuse or something like that that we see um, and also that there has to they have to be vulnerable. Now vulnerable can be cognitive issues they can't really speak for themselves can't fully understand what's going on. The second one's categorical, or basically if you're an institution like a, like a hospital or a nursing home, in those situations that has to be reported as well. But it varies by state, um, but oftentimes there's a combination of, there's a physical part of it, Yeah, you know, either it has to be harm, or you know something we see that's a, a challenge, as well as fitting the criteria of vulnerability. But that
0: varies a little bit by state. What if we're not sure? Um, let's say we maybe suspect some type of abuse, but we're, you know, not really positive that's happening. Uh, do we still report this, or do we take extra steps for this? I
1: think we have to do that, Daryl. So I think if we have a, if we suspect abuse, uh, either based upon neglect is oftentimes a common one, um, or we have financial ex- financial exploitation that may be both. Uh, a, a county discussion or state, as well as maybe even law enforcement, depending upon how bad that situation is, I think we're obligated to report that. I think we have, we have enough evidence that we suspect there's something going on, we have to report it. We're the ones taking the information, Darrell. We're the ones who are looking at these individuals and saying, golly, I'm concerned about you're your your losing weight, and you don't fully understand what's kind of going on because of self-neglect. We have to communicate. Now, oftentimes, the common point of entry is either through the state or through the county. Uh, to make those reports, and and that will get some other evidence, other information about what's going on within the home. Because that's the one thing we oftentimes don't have, is what's the home situation like? If you do have that, that can be very advantageous, but oftentimes we as practicing physicians may not have that information.
0: Well, as a healthcare provider, we're well-trained in assessing symptoms and uh, prescribing medications and ordering tests, but we probably haven't had a lot of training in this field. Um, who's there to help us? What if we do suspect? A, is there somebody that we can call to give us some help?
1: A- absolutely. I think that for almost all of us, we have access to social workers. You know, They're the, probably the most common partner within our teams that will help us to say, what can we do next? Uh, oftentimes, our social workers may understand well the resources within the community that we can actually access. You know, there are Meals on Wheels or there's something for uh, uh, homemaker services or nursing services within the home. So social work is certainly yeah. an important part of that. Uh, depending upon the situation, um, you can kind of hopefully find if there's nutritional support we can use or... Um, if there's <coughs> specific something within nursing, we can, we can access that as well. But social work is probably the most common that we can see. That's within our own institutions. The, comu- the, the community itself, the county oftentimes also have resources as well. So don't be afraid to look into those, um,
0: that collaborative process as we kind of move forward. Yeah. I know the two most important people that I would go to for help when I was in uh, geriatrics was a pharmacist and a social worker. Uh, they have expertise in areas Absolutely. that uh, I may need help with. And uh, even for patients who have some self-neglect, social workers often have thoughts and ideas about how to keep them independent. Maybe that's by getting somebody to deliver meals or help with housekeeping, you can safely keep them in their home for that's, longer. That's
1: the goal, Daryl. I mean, our goal is, I think the, the, the challenging issue is a lot of people have this assumption that our goal is to take them out of their home that we're going to take you out of your independent living and put you in assisted living or into a nursing home. And oftentimes that's not, in fact, the case. We really do want to try to maintain people within the home. That's everybody's goal. That's the patient's goal, the family's goal, the state's goal. Everyone's goal is to maintain your independence. Oftentimes people need just a little bit of help. Sometimes it is that, you know, homemaker services or Meals on Wheels or something else that will provide that for
0: them. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so we've talked about our obligation to report this when we identify it or even if we suspect it. What are some clues that providers can look at and start thinking of this? Well,
1: the first thing on on the terms of the clues is assessing your patient and saying, are they at risk for having abuse? So that's the first key. So I think those are people like me, if they have concerns about their cognitive status, you know, our people with, our patients with dementia are the ones we worry most about because they're living in the community, they may have, mild cognitive impairment or may have mild dementia or thinking okay this is a progressive illness this will continue to get worse and do we have worries or concerns that they will be at risk for abuse second thing of course is you know what is their social situation what is what's around them again i'm mostly concerned about neglect and when people are by themselves don't have a good support network around them they're at high risks so that's another thing that we we think about and um, you know lastly if there's any issues of mental health uh, um, chemical dependency or abuse, those type of things, but people are higher risk for having abuse. When we have that kind of suspicion in the back of our mind, what do we look for? Uh, physically, we look for any kind of evidence of injuries, much like you would for any other type of abuse in children or in uh, domestic violence, those types of issues. So we're looking for bruising and broken bones. Uh, we're also looking for, particularly for the neglect question for our, our older adults, are they missing their medications? Are you concerned there's a compliance issue which could be coming up because they're just forgetting to take their medication? Are they losing weight? And that's one thing we always look at every time they come in the office: is is there been a, a pattern of weight loss? If we see that pattern of weight loss and we're concerned about they're taking or if they're taking their medication
0: or not, that's where I think we have to say, okay, there's some concerns here. So really, just like any other healthcare problem, we're assessing and treating. There are risk factors to abuse as well. Absolutely. And the biggest risk factor for for all of us to be aware of is the cognitive,
1: is is the biggest one. Because I think that that's, if people are aware of what's going on, people make their own decisions, or they can. So they may make poor financial decisions, um, that happens. If they're making decisions that are poor financial decisions, they've got dementia that may be another concern for financial exploitation or something else that's going on. So there are risk factors. There are signs and symptoms that we pick up. We can ask people, too. Are you concerned about how you're doing at home? Are you having increased falls? Those type of things as well, Daryl, which I think is is, is really critical to Mm -hmm. understand. Mm -hmm.
0: And there are a lot of scams going on, too, often involving the elderly, over the phone, uh, door-to-door. Absolutely. All
1: those things are out there because, you know... A lot of our our patients who have just a little bit of some mild cognitive issues or some impairment don't have really good understanding or trusting they may not be fully aware that everybody's out there to try to take their take their money and take their resources there are a lot of different scams and so I think it's important for uh, us to advise people that we're taking care of that the families and the patients themselves need to understand that try to avoid anything that comes in over the phone or
0: certainly over the uh, the mail. Sure. Well, and add to that the vulnerability of many of our elders Absolutely. where they, they may need help in a lot of areas. So the uh, person who comes to their house offers to resurface their driveway for an unbelievably low price. It's... Uh, yeah, you have to be suspicious. You do, and you do. And I think that hopefully we
1: continue to try to educate our, our patients about this and try to educate families about this as well, just to be really, really cautious. I think that's, in, that's the world that we live in, that there's somebody to try to, you know, doing something for nothing is, is definitely not the right sure. answer. Yeah.
0: Did you know that some of our recent podcast episodes are available for opioid CME credits? Many of you need this for your state's medical license renewal. Mayo Clinic Talks are a great way to learn at your convenience. In the car, at the beach, or while mowing the lawn. Find out more at ce.mayo.edu opioidpc or Google Mayo Opioid Podcast. Well, you've talked about risk factors for our patients. How about risk factors for the caregivers? Are there any things that we should be a little bit more alert for in terms of what characteristics caregivers of our patients have? Surely. And I think that the the things that
1: we're obviously concerned about is if there's, for our older patients, sometimes we do ask about, if it's a spouse in particular, what's the spouse's health condition? Does the spouse have health issues such as um, histories of stroke or heart disease or dementia in them, you know, those are questions to ask. How do you feel your wife or your husband's doing? If it's somebody else, like a, like a child or another loved one, um, what are their risks in terms of, again, same, same type of questions about abuse in general, which involves um, mental health issues, chemical dependency, um, those things that put people a little higher risk for being a, a little more abusive certainly is something we have to be aware of when we, when we think about or talk about caregivers. Mm-hmm. And within our institutions, same type of issues. Is there a history of chemical dependency, um, of violence, those types of issues? Now, hopefully, those are being screened for in the, in the background checks that our institutions are doing to make sure those individuals are not, uh, are not being employed in those places. But, yeah. you know, there's something to be aware of.
0: And, and very commonly, some of the employees in those institutions haven't had a lot of training. That's and, always yeah. And the turnover is so rapid; it's really hard to keep them trained. It's very difficult, Daryl, because um,
1: you know within our institution, that's a, that's obviously a big issue. that comes up in the paper or uh, or nationally all the time. You know, what's the current issues with institutional abuse, nursing home abuse, and we have to recognize that a vast majority of people get good and excellent care and long term care. I mean, I think that's the important part. Mm-hmm. But there are There are some individuals who are, again, coming in for the first time, have not had a lot of training or may not have a lot of intuition. Maybe they haven't a lot of experience taking care of other people, either children or adults. And so they're trying to figure all this stuff out. So I think that uh, hopefully our institutions are doing a good job of training these individuals. And we just need to be aware that um, these things can happen. I think that we as physicians need to make sure we interact with our, our facilities and we talk with them and make sure that we get good training to them as well and give good support and make sure that they know that we have some things
0: to help. Yeah. It's there's no question. It's a tough job too for Absolutely. Our, our nursing assistants in these institutions, uh, many of our patients with dementia are somewhat combative at times, agitated. And I'm sure the response is to have some type of response to that combativeness and uh... That's correct. And people just don't you
1: know just don't or just not aware or sometimes don't understand that how do you deal with people with dementia? True. You know, I'm either with, like I said, the combativeness or even the tougher ones are people withdrawn, They stop eating and then they, they just say, well, you need to continue to coax, So how do you continue to f- feed our individuals who need that kind of help and support? So it's something that's very important. It's a trained, it's a trained area. It's a professional area. So I think that you, know, um, you know, our CNAs have to be trained and they go through specific training to be able to
0: work in those environments. So we need to make sure we treat them as professionals. Is it known how common abuse is in our institutions? I think we have a yeah. little bit of a handle on our community, but how about institutions? It's, it's not very high, Darrell. I
1: mean, I think that there's there's been some concern that, um, you know, how do we investigate this and how do we look into this? I think that we need to do that and we need to be aware of it. And I think certainly we see the egregious cases come to, uh, you know, local or national print very quickly, but I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's not terribly high, but you know, we know that it's probably increasing to some degree because, as you're well aware, caregiver workforce issues are difficult. It's difficult on the assisted living part of that, on this, um, the nursing home part. And our population's aging. There's more need. And we need more help and support. And those people aren't out there. And so I think that what's happening, we're seeing this everywhere, is um, more need with less folk. And that as a recipe for more challenge. So the best way to get good care is to have more folk. Mm-hmm. And they've known, we've done the, they've done those studies numerous different times in long-term care. It's like how do you get really good care for your mom or your dad? Uh, that's
0: by having a facility that has an adequate number of staff. Is it known that facilities that are understaffed have more potential for abuse Have the numbers shown abuse?
1: Out? or um, the bigger issues are, are survey processes so that and it gives, that's an indirect way to look at abuse, but survey process is better with higher staff. Okay. So it's just it's physically the amount of people who can take
0: care of mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the first thing we need to do is keep this in mind. Um, are there s- like screening questions or particular things that we can ask our patients to give us a clue that there might be yeah. some problems going on?
1: So that's a joint commission re- uh, requires that we ask some degree of uh, abuse questions to our individual people coming into the clinic. So we do ask those questions. A lot of it's directly, you know, do you feel safe? Or you, um, do you have any concerns about your health? those types of kind of a broad questionnaires or broad screening screening tests that come in and this usually happens again about anybody coming into the clinic that could be again domestic violence or for younger populations as well as older Uh, within our older population I generally do recommend that just a simple question of, do you feel safe within your home? Now, that could be safe. Could either be, again, physical issues, physical abuse, emotional abuse, or neglect. If you're saying, oh, I am just I feel like I'm not making it at home, hopefully the patient will recognize that and be able to tell you that. There's a lot of things that go against it, of course, Daryl, much like it is for any type of abuse, that oftentimes these are loved ones. These are our, our, our children or our spouse or somebody else that's really closely in, in, involved with their life. Nobody really wants to say that, you know, hey, my, my, uh, my, my daughter's giving, doing this to me or my daughter's taking my money. I mean, that's, that's not an easy thing for anybody ever to admit, even to their physician. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of barriers sometimes for people to get adequate information out to us. But I think we need to continue to ask and be in a supportive and helpful environment and make sure we're working on their behalf. We're not trying to do a,
0: a gotcha type of thing with them. Okay, very good. Well, we've been talking with Dr. Paul Takahashi, a uh, geriatrician and general internist uh, within the Division of Community Internal Medicine here at Mayo in Rochester. Paul, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thanks, Daryl. Today's episode is sponsored by Mayo Clinic CME. Attend a live or online medical education conference in a wide variety of specialties and locations. Hobnob with medical experts. Learn about the latest practice changes and bring home a whole new perspective. Register today at ce.mayo.edu. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talk's podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.